Hello, and welcome to the Always Already Podcast. I'm John. I'm B. And we have a very special guest with us today. We do. We have our friend and fellow colleague at the Graduate Center in Political Science, Emily Crandall. Hi, Emily. Hello. Hello, Always Already fans. Yay. We're happy so happy to, to have here. you here, Emily. Um, before we get going, maybe you want to tell folks what some of your research interests are? Sure. Absolutely. So I've been uh, interested in the feminist line of thinking. Uh, <laughs> Primarily feminist philosophy of science, feminist epistemologies, um, a little bit of disability, that kind of stuff. Excellent. Um, and today we're going to help you bring that perspective to our discussion of Ernesto Leclau. Uh, we want to thank Kevin Ralph for suggesting we talk about Leclau. Um, we're talking about the preface and two chapters from his Emancipations, which came out in 1995 and Versa reissued it in 2007. The chapters we're talking about are universalism, particularism, and the question of identity, and why do empty signifiers matter for politics? Why do empty signifiers matter for politics? We hope to bring that answer to you, the people, today Uh, on the Always Already Podcast. I'm just going to put this out on the table. As plenty of people already at the Graduate Center know, I'm a huge Latour Latour fanboy, and you will probably be hearing a lot of Latourian critique out of me today of LaClau. I'm glad that these... Are you apologizing for that beforehand or just stating I'm it? not saying apologetically. Okay. I'm merely putting it on the table I'm so that it's not an annoyance. Right? Apologia on what you just okay. said. Just giving fair warning to people. Sure. So before we get going with our conversation, we want to, as we did for last episode, have a hopefully brief uh, introduction that we recorded to quickly overview the main arguments of these pieces. In the preface, the cloud talks a little bit about the historical context of the collection of essays. It's the first half of the 1990s, and he talks about it as being characterized by the rebellions of a number of particularisms against totalized, totalizing ideologies. And so he talks about one of the crucial features of a new politics to be the redefinition of the relationship between universality and particularity. Think about logics of mediations and about the universal as an empty place. Which brings us to the chapter Universalism, Particularism, and the Question of Identity. And so here he's really interested in the question of subjectivity and the relationship of subjectivity and identity to questions of totality and universalism. He talks about a number of historical incarnations of understanding the universal and the particular and their relationship. For modernity, he says that reason starts to be the method by which universality gets realized, and here he cites specifically Hegel and Marx. The problem that modernity presents, though, for Laclau is that it was supposed to be a universal actually ended up being a particular 19th century Europe. And thus, what happens is that the belief that Europe incarnates universal human interests happens, leading to racism, colonialism, imperialism, and so on. So this can't be a solution out of the universal particular problem. Postmodernism, conversely, he argues, appeals to pure particularity and pure difference. This, he thinks, is a self-defeating enterprise. He thinks that pure difference must ultimately appeal to something more general in the principles determining relationships between differences or even in their own identities themselves. He argues that one cannot construct an identity on a closure from an outside. 
So, Laclau says in this essay, what do we need? We first need to assert that the link between dominant values, dominant groups, and universal values is contingent and changeable by social contestation. And thus, we need what he calls a systematic decentering of the West, um, such that the universal values and European or Western social agents are delinked. Ultimately, for him, this means that universalism changes in its nature. In Decentering the West, he says, quote, Universalism as a horizon is expanded, at the same time its necessary attachment to any particular content is broken. The universal, as we have seen, does not have a concrete content of its own, which would close in on itself, but is an always receiving horizon resulting from the expansion of an indefinite chain of equivalent demand. This presents a paradox, however. Universality, in Laclau's view, always needs particularity. Universality is incommensurable with particularity, but does not exist without particularity. It's only the particular that can actually mobilize the universal. So there's this permanent asymmetry between universality and particularity that he says is an unsolvable paradox, but nonetheless a necessary paradox, that the non-solution itself is the precondition of democracy. Where democracy happens because there is no necessary necessary content to the universal, so different groups compete to fill the universal, generate empty signifiers whose signified result from this political competition. This brings us to the second essay, Why Do Empty Signifiers Matter for Politics? He starts by going into a bit of a semiotic interlude to talk about the empty signifier and what it is. It is, in semiotic terms, the signifier without a signified. More specifically, it's ultimate the limit of signification itself which can only be expressed, he thinks, through the subversion of signification. His connection of empty signifiers to politics. In politics, he says, there's the question of how, from a series of partial demands, partial struggles, partial groups, and a unity can be constructed. He sees this unity ultimately as some sort of equivalence in opposition. It's only a negative opposition to the present dominant oppressive regime that's shared between these groups. There are the struggles over what group or demand uh, will incarnate this opposition of all to the repressive power itself. What happens, he thinks, is that beyond the concrete chain of equivalences between groups and opposition is some pure but abstract communitarian being, is the phrase he uses for it, and this is the empty signifier. It's emptied of particularity, and it signifies this absent totality of communitarian being. The question of which struggle will incarnate this universal communal function is shaped by social and power relations around it. What group or struggle can transform their contents into the node from which an empty signifier will be generated. And how this happens is one of the things that the term hegemony indicates for Laclau. He says on page 43, this relation by which a particular content becomes a signifier of the absent communitarian fullness is exactly what we call a hegemonic relationship. The presence of empty signifiers, in the sense that we have defined them, is the very condition of hegemony. Some particular group is presented as the incarnation of the empty signifier that is related to the community itself. He gives us an example on page 44 where he talks about if we think about order in some vague sense without any content is an empty signifier if we were in the context of total disorder or total anarchy. There's thus a competition of particular political forces to see who can quote-unquote fill this lack. Ultimately, he says that any term, liberation, unity, revolution, etc., can come to fill this role. And finally, he argues that it is empty signifier themselves, which end up being the precondition of politics. Thanks. Hope you enjoy the episode. So I think we may want to just start 
by talking about what he kind of sets up in the preface as one of the main aspects of the book is about the way that particularity and universality kind of mediate one another. And B is looking uh, with a look of consternation on his face. So maybe he wants to say <laughs> is something. Is that the look? I, look, I find conversations about universality or universalities problematic in general. And I think that, you know, maybe I'm just misreading Clow, but I feel as though... Um, I, I don't know if I can buy into the notion that there's this transcendent universality. Uh, I don't know if I can buy into the idea, as it were, that um, in any way particulars uh, can't exist without a universal. Um, and maybe I'm reading this from the, from a an epistemological point of view. Latour. <laughs> Of Latour, which suggests that if we have these lived states, these cognitive states we were talking about before the recording, um, it is within those states that we first experience through whatever means and mediate those experiences um, as particulars that may not necessarily even become universal. So he's using it in this way, I think, that links up with his earlier writings on hegemony that I just don't – it's this idea of hegemony that I have a problem with, and I think that it links up – with how he discusses universality. Maybe I'm reading him wrong, but, you know, maybe you'd like to rebut. Well, I'm not sure where you see the universality as being transcendent here, transcending on his view. I think he discusses a particular kind of universality that is perceived to be transcending and transcendent, but I don't know that he himself actually uh, buys into that as the, um, you know, essential element of uh, universality, right? I mean, he does say that they're contingent upon one another in particular ways, universality and particularity. But, um, I mean, yeah, I'm with Emily on this one, right? Because, I mean, he talks about universality actually is the opposite of something that's transcendent. So this is like pages 34, 35. He talks about this kind of constantly receding horizon that keeps having to be filled with concrete contents that come from the particulars. So I guess, yeah, I'm with Emily. I'm not sure why we think it's... But the universal never has concrete content. Yeah, right? that's, the, so, that's the point. So says. so we're always attempting to, to fill it with concrete content, but that's a hopeless endeavor. Which, in if, if that's the case, then... So well, this who's is my, the we? Yeah. Uh, well, okay, so let's say subjects are always trying to fill the universal with concrete content. Um, if the universal is is always receding, then it's coming from the point you know it's coming from the embodied point of view, which suggests that particulars can exist without a universal. Is that and Cloud would agree with that, correct? I don't think so. How could there be? How could there not be? Couldn't particulars qua particulars just exist without there being a universal to to necessarily describe them? This is I, I will agree with you there. That is one of my critiques of the of the first chapter, the universality particularity chapter, uh, because I'm not sure I'm with him that because he essentially makes the point that all particularity or any attempts at pure particularity can never not refer to some universal. I'm not sure about that either. Yeah. So the more I think about this, the more I think that maybe maybe he's talking about a particular kind of universal, (laughs) which is that that arises specifically out of Western Enlightenment rationality, right? So we don't have particulars without reference to that white male Eurocentric universality unless we point out that that 
white male Eurocentric universality is, in fact, not universal. Okay, so in a way, it's suggesting that there's this there's an ideological content. So ideology and universality might be similar or maybe metonymous in I, some way. I think that what's how it is. Is that even a word? It's but, a good word. Yeah. I hope it's a word. It's I hope a word it's a now. Word. <laughs> Made it a word. You heard it here first. Yeah. <laughs> Breaking news on the Oregon podcast. <laughs> Um, I think that what ideology does is work or try to manipulate the relationship between universality and particularity, right? If we pick up on the example that Emily was discussing, you know, one of the things that he critiques, you know, European modernity and rational rationality for is making the both the you know, making the particular Western European 18th and 19th century culture, individual, etc they read that as the universal bearer of all human values or something Mm -hmm. like that, right? So that's a particular ideology at works that manipulates or attempts to work with the relation between the universal and particular in a certain way. So that's what I think one of the things that ideology does is try to negotiate that relationship between universality and particularity, right? In the same way that he, you know, he talks, walks through these different ways that different philosophies or perspectives or whatever try to negotiate that relationship, right? So he talks about ancient philosophy, he talks about um, Christian theology, he talks about European rationality, and he talks about postmodernism. Mm-hmm. Well, it seems to me then the uh, the notion of ideology could then work its way into universality. It's no longer, or it could potentially do that, right? I mean, I hope I'm not being totally illogical here if I'm suggesting that it goes beyond just negotiating. What is there a point at which ideology no longer negotiates between the universal and the particular? Well, it's just hegemony, right? Yeah. Okay. That ideology becomes the plane, becomes the, mm-hmm. the terrain in which um, the negotiation itself is taking place. So ideology isn't doing the negotiation. Ideology is that which is contained within the negotiation. So, I mean, that seems to me... Well, don't remember... Don't forget... Right? Don't remember. Don't forget also, too, he has some... A little bit of beef with the notion of negotiation anyway, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, Good he point. wants to say that um, multiple particularities can't... We can't just negotiate our way out of multiple incommensurate and conflicting particularities, right? That there's something more sort of at work there. There, Yeah. Okay, no, I see that. I think that my, I think where this is coming from for me is just trying to read um, the particular as, for me, uh-huh. reading the particular as the source of, how would I phrase this? As a source where social scientists or anyone in, interested in the social should start and look and review and think and theorize um, and avoid these, I feel like the, the tendency to, the tendency toward a universal is like these meta uh, meta narratives, right? Yeah. Well, it's weird. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's exactly. a weird. Yeah. I mean, and I don't. That was positivism. It, yeah, positivism. <laughs> and it's, it, it's moving towards that 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 frightens me. And so, <laughs> right. So, Emily voiced voiced itself through Emily. But so, B, do you do you think Laclau? Where do you think Laclau is in that? If, if that's like the way you're delineating a debate, where do you think Laclau is in that? You think he's you think he's too much starting at this meta level and not paying enough attention to the particulars? I think that he's suggesting that the particulars of, say, political identities, for mm-hmm. example, have sprung from contingent of, contingent almost universal events or, to, or total events. Like, say, the collapse of the Soviet Union, for example. Um, it, that 
contingent moment uh, produced a variety of political identities. Um, and from if we think about that as a the collapse of some totality or whatever, which I'm not suggesting totality and universality are the same things, but right. um, it seems to say that identities could in fact be top down and not bottom up. And I'm not convinced that an identity or any kind of, if we're thinking about subjectivity, ought to be thought about like that. I think that I, I, I would think that, you know, we would, we're trying to push past thinking along those lines. And so Laclau, I think, would be, in my opinion, believing more of a top down. I don't, you know, I don't see him as saying that. I apologize that, to all Laclau fans out there that, the that I'm totally misreading just him. alienated the Laclau. I know. I apologize. And that's when they all sign off. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really see that him claiming any necessary direction between the two. I mean, they're asymmetrical, right? But they're not. There's not necessarily a direction that articulates like which particulars will. You know, I think I think it's a little bit more organic than that. I think yeah. he sees it as a little bit more organic than that. Not necessarily like. I think I think maybe we're putting too much uh, emphasis on this way that we just aligned like ideology a bit with universality. Sure. Like I think he sees it as a bit more organic, and and he sees it as you know, a sort of, like, non-problematic, irresolvable paradox, right? Like, he's not saying this is a paradox and therefore it's a problem and we need to fix it. He's saying this is paradoxical and end sentence. Go right? forth. Like, yeah. Yeah. He's, I mean, he says, this is page 35, he says that that paradox is actually the precondition of democracy itself. What does that mean? Yeah. I, mean, I think it means that I mean, and this is where I'm, this also gets into the empty signifiers essay. And right. this is, a, you know, we can talk maybe later on about whether democracy itself is an empty signifier. Um, but to, like, spoiler way, alert, <laughs> it is. It is. <laughs> um, Wendy Brown, now, if you're out once, there, I read your essay. W- once again, <laughs> the, we've made the listeners stop 12 minutes in <laughs> and instead of me listening to the end. So. <laughs> well, okay, spoiler alert. I I mean I it's a good one. <laughs> I think that he thinks that democracy is in some ways the negotiation medi- mediation not negotiation Emily's right it's mediation of these various particulars to give the universal some content content, right the universal is contentless for him in and of itself it has to be given con given content from the interaction and struggles and agonism of the various particulars and so that's why i think this paradox that emily points to is i think that's what he means when he said that that's the precondition for democracy yeah okay so i see that but then if we're filling the universal, if the universal then reflects back upon to the particular, it seems sure. the, that's the image that I was getting as you were speaking. Our constant mediation. Like, okay, I think constant it's a little mediation. less dialectical. Okay. I All right. Think. All right. If it's less dialectical, then that's fine. I just I'm worried that then the universal becomes the uh, the intermediary, as it were. But you know, or the or this. Hold on, I'll backtrack. The subject becomes nothing more than the intermediary for the universal that has fil- that has some kind of content. That's being filled. My worry is that how do we get to the subject? We, Can we get to the subject by bypassing the universal? Let's let's read this really quick. Can I do that? Yeah, yeah. please do. Okay, so on page 35, if democracy is possible, it is because the universal has no necessary body and no necessary content. Different groups instead compete between themselves to temporarily give to their particular particularisms a function of universal representation. Society generates a whole vocabulary of empty, empty signifiers 
whose temporary signifieds are the result of a political competition. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that he's actually very careful. I mean, I have critiques from elsewhere, but I do think he's very careful to say, to retain agency, right? It seems that what's hidden beneath your critique B is saying that there's no agency left for individuals or for any for subjects or whatever. Yeah, social actors. So, social actors, that's probably better terminology, you're right. And I think he's actually careful to say that it's, it's precisely because the universal is contentless on its own that there is agency. Okay. Right. And, well, and, yeah. and, and you know, this also is like, in my mind, reading, you know, particularly, and I'm comfortable doing it in relation to in relation to <laughs> MOOF and like the way that MOOF theorizes agonistic democracy. Right? Yeah. Look, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm totally sympathetic with that. Uh, my fear is just that, you know, the way and I, I love LeClown MOOF's um, book on hegemony and socialist strategy. I love the ideas that hegemony are is is really just a terrain in which multiple articulations happen the idea that hegemony can somehow explain away even if it's not political hegemony if we're just talking about social hegemony or um ideas that are popular at the time that give content to the subject that we can just sort of well we can move towards that terrain and say ah there it is. I can explain the social position of this person. I can explain the experiences of this person. I can now, you know, by recourse to the universal, bypass having to go to the particular, even though the particular is constantly engaged in mediations. So my worry is, uh, so one thing would be LeCloud doesn't necessarily engage okay. in that. I, I'm not going to accuse him of that. Of that. I was going to say, just, you know, protecting LeCloud here. I'm saying that a quick reading of LeClau, and I think in a lot of the literatures on this, might lead to that kind of meta-analysis that does not do justice, and, you know, forgive the phrase, uh, to the subject, to the to the social actor, and the mediations they actually engage in. Justice is an empty signifier. Yes. <laughs> As so many things really are. Okay, I think I'm I'm with you on that. See, I mean, that's that's where the critique's coming mm -hmm. from. Is my worry is that we can maybe we can play fast and loose with, you know, this these ideas of what uh, what is a universal, what is a particular, a particular needing a universal, et cetera, et cetera, um, and never really have to worry about the particular. Well, I think we also need to be careful to not like make wish he was saying something that he's not no, right I, I mean he's not taking I up the question of that. like how can we explain particular particulars and mm -hmm. their self identifications or something he's i mean i think he's really thinking about the sort of theoretical relationship between universal and particular and doing an interesting thing which is to say that there probably is no universal, and yet this paradox that we sort of need the universal to define the particular holds, and, mm -hmm. and it's asymmetrical, and it is incommensurable, but it still is. But the wonderful thing would be competing universals, then, in the sense that communities and groups identify and make universal this is, for themselves. This is actually exa almost precisely what I think he's talking about when he says yeah. that this paradox of universality is the precondition of democracy. Right? And democracy so, is that competition that you're describing. So then it, then democracy is the essence, in essence, is competing universals. Or competing struggles to fill universal to, with content. Right. That's, okay. I think, how I would use the well, to describe it. Okay. Because, I mean, I just see, especially, if we're, I mean, if we're thinking about gender identity, if we're thinking about sexed identities, all of these things, 
He's not um, interested in gender identity. They're clearly, clearly not. Gonna get which into is that its own critique. Sure. I, think I think that, you know, communities, genderqueer communities, trans communities, uh, fill universals in certain ways that compete with other, you know, gender universals that we have, right? And let's, so, let's take an that example. That was my fear. Though. Like, what if, we, what if we take the category woman, right? And say, I think what LeClau's argument is, is that woman as a universal doesn't actually have any content, mm-hmm. right? But we fill it, particulars fill it with content. So, um, you know, breaking down the sort of like stereotypical gender binary and social roles, uh, it actually works to expand the universal of women or women rather than, um, create another universal, right? It's so a it's a struggle it's, for a different, a different, yeah, a different content of what woman is. So we're st- but see, that's my fear is okay. then what we're doing is just stretching a category. Why not? Okay. Why not just yeah. allow for another category? Or a multiplication of categories. That's a totally legitimate question. This gets into something that I think we were talking about before the show, right? That he says that we can never just have pure proliferation of particularity, right? And right. he cites uh, Deleuze's difference in repetition mm-hmm. as an example of one thing that he thinks does this. Um, I'm not sure I'm totally with his critique uh, that pure particularity or particularity is always self-defeating. I'm not sure I understand that claim, honestly. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know if I totally, I don't know if I understand it. Should we look I, at it? I, Where I, my fear, I have two fears. Sure. One, I've been struggling with this idea um, that I know a lot of trans activists um, are, have been articulating. It's, it's kind of a, I don't know, the contentious claim that's been made by someone like Judith Butler uh-huh. that says, you know, you can, you can subvert or, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, you can be subversive, um, gender subversive, and multiply out within the category woman, whatever that might mean. But again, my problem is why is it that we have to retain woman, right? The single, the one uh, category, stretch it out and multiply out, um, you know, things that would fit within it. Why not have, again, uh, why, why can't we proliferate um competing like i was saying earlier competing universals in which case you have yeah you got woman but you maybe you got trans woman that doesn't necessarily have to line up it can but it may not necessarily have to Uh depending upon how the person identifies they identify as trans woman within the universal woman yeah fine if they identify as trans woman outside of woman altogether that does not it doesn't even what if it just doesn't even contain the residue of the universal woman yeah I'm with you on that. The thing that I think I like about this, though, is that I think for LeCloud, the existence of women that don't fit the previous, the hegemonic notion of universal woman is evidence of the fact that that universal woman isn't real, Mm. right? That Mm -hmm. that, that it's it's actually content less, that it, what we perceive to be the uh, content that fills it is... um, you know, flexible, it's all these other things. Yeah. So, so maybe like we can accept that part of the argument right. without taking it all the way to, to say that therefore there still is a universal woman, right? Right. We could say that the, the evidence that suggests that there is no real, whatever that means, content to the category, uh, you, it sounds to me like you would want to say therefore means that we should get rid of the category altogether. Well, I would I would say we can keep the category. Get rid of the universe. I could right. totally I'm totally on board with keeping the category. 
You want uh, all the categories. I want all the categories. I want all the things and all the categories right. and all the subversions and all the multiplicities. I want them all. Now, the um, question that LeClaire raises, and I'm not sure I'm with him on this, but he would, I think what he would say, and like here we're looking at, I don't know, pages 26, 27, 28 um, of the text, is that he's, one of the arguments he's going to make is that if, we're, if we only have multiplicity or we only have particularities or multiple particularities, that actually those end up, he thinks, being exclusionary of one another and kind of rigidified in their own sense. And then I think he's also arguing that each of those particularities is actually referring to some universal that in asserting its own particularity of, thus affirms that universal. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure I agree with him on that. Right? I think that you know the proliferation or multiple categories or multiple identities or whatever doesn't always already have to um, number one doesn't have to refer to some you know I don't know if it's like the Lacanian real or like some universality and he talks about in terms of context and then in affirming pure particularity you also end up affirming the context against which you define that particularity I'm not sure I'm with him there, but that's the challenge he would pose, I think, to say, you know, let's flatten and just multiply particular identities or genders or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And not to be, uh, you know, I'm, I would be remiss by bringing up Habermas and suggesting that he, you know, covers uh, power relations. He obviously doesn't. Um, but I, I would I would probably my rejoinder to that would be, you know, at least a reference to Habermas about communicative theory. The he notions does, that he does mention Habermas. He does. He's, I think he was criti- he's very critical. Um, but my suggestion would be um, the proliferation of multiplicities doesn't it? It would come across as potentially rigidifying or uh, exclusionary. However, given communicative theory, given the ways in which we communicate as as humans, I don't I don't think that that exclusion given okay given the theory of multiples. I don't think that ex- the that it would become as exclusionary as LeCloud would theorize. Okay. I think in maybe if it links up with like mechanical reproduction and capitalism, I think it can in that instance because it's serving, you know, then then we're getting into really you know, way more Habermasian of you. I know, I know, realized. I know, but you know, oh God, I know it's it's coming out. It's like repressed <laughs> Lacanian <laughs> stuff here, but. I actually think what he's concerned about is a really valid concern, right? Mm-hmm. The argument is that if um, if we're making claims to particulars on the basis of the fact that there are only particulars, then we have to accept all the particulars, right? So yeah, he's worried about like the the KKK, right? Like how do what what by what criteria can we say that uh-huh. or, or that like this is wrong or um, what, by what criteria can we generate social practices with which to fight against that if we have no universal, even if its content is flexible or mm-hmm. something like that? Well, so the, the, well, the epistemological question, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, in a, at a t- table filled with people talking about humanity, does a Nazi get to talk about humanity right. or right. the value of life? Do we listen to the viewpoint of that? And, you know, unfortunately, my statement would be yes. Then epistemologically right, but he's speaking, not asking the epistemological question. I know, but so if we don't take into account the parti- every particular, I think we're committing an epistemic injustice. Sure. We're epistemically privileging ourselves by suggesting that we have criteria that would foreclose 
certain kinds of particulars because they're bad. And here's one of the problems I have with LeClaue on this issue of particularity. He seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the way I'm reading him, you know, he talks about particulars in as if they were kind of, I don't know, always fully achieved. Yeah. yeah right? And, but I think that instead we should be thinking about particulars as, you know, constantly becoming or is, you mm -hmm. know, deterritorializing and re-territorializing or always partial and, or unfinished. And one of Definitely. those kinds of registers, yeah. which I think avoids some of the traps of particularity that he identifies. I see what you're, yeah, I think that's totally right. Which I then I think actually lends credence to some of your critiques, whether it's specific to, say, gender or more broader critiques that you've had against him be, is that perhaps by the way that he talks about particularity over finishes the way that particularities are happening from actual interactions. Uh-oh, actual he's over-determining. Potentially. Do we think that's why he doesn't actually put gender in his list of what the <laughs> yeah. particulars are? Like, maybe if we open it up to be something that is particular in that uh, everybody has one. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> I am doing scare quotes here. You can't see. Sure. Um, <laughs> Then no, we're all then, academics. Then his... We're experts at indicating scare yes. quotes with the tone of our yes. voice. It's one of our few marketable gender, skills. Gender. Sex. Everyone has one. Everyone has one. <laughs> um, well, I just we're just going to completely now. derail you the rest of the anyway, <laughs> yeah. that's No, I think but you're on. You're on to something there. Particulars with oh, that maybe this doesn't make sense anymore if we don't if we think about particulars that aren't sort of finished or mm -hmm. or whole or something well it's a good critique to level at LeClau then to suggest that particulars are somehow criti uh, um, concrete solid finished right. thus overdetermined in a way determined and potentially in this sense overdetermined by you know maybe if we're talking about you know mediation etc right Another aspect, kind of, even to bring it back to your article in The Atlantic, you know, it seems if the, you know, replacement or subsumption of public democratic processes or government processes under private capital is one aspect of, say, the neoliberalization of philanthropy, is there something also particularly neoliberal about the marketization or consumerization of philanthropy as well, right? Is this part of the same kind of general neoliberalizing processes that are also affecting those sorts of changes? Absolutely, because what these what these sort of twinned, um, twinned uh, ideological currents and discourses do is they crowd out um, other rationales for collective action. Mm -hmm. um, what so so on the one hand you have a sense that going through consumer behavior or making a um, a somehow empirical case right. for social change like that that's some, that that's simply that instrumentally that is simply a better and more effective way to go. And then we can ignore the fact that it's caught up in these capital generating market processes. Oh, correct. Because we buy, right. go buy things and it helps people and makes us feel good. Yes. Right. Exactly. I mean that, and that was the, the point of many comments, which mm -hmm. was to say like, why are you complaining about this? Right. Which is really the big problem of criticizing philanthropy. Um, so, so you have that on one side and then you have the, um, and then you have on the other side, the sense that, Institutions that do operate uh, with it with different priorities mm -hmm. and values that rely on you know democratic decision making 
as fraught and difficult as that may be, right. I'm not saying that state driven, you know, state based institutions are. Yeah, and I want to get into that in a minute. So too, great, sure. right? Um, that on the one, that on the other hand, those are um, simply like tired, like tired forms mm-hmm. of uh, of of social of society building. Right. Um, so it it it, it, it cuts both ways, right? It it un, you know it celebrates one form of activity, it undermines the other. And in the end, it really positions the successful individual uh, within capitalism uh-huh. as this sort of totalizing feudal presence who has authority over all realms of life. Right. Um, and there's really no counter. And and it, and by that time, it's undermined the validity of any countervailing collective action. Mm-hmm. Now, I mean, do you think it's a difficult position? To on the one hand, we have to you know argue against the subsumption of democratic processes or public processes under philanthropic capitalism, and on the other hand, though it seems that we also want to argue that well that doesn't preclude or doesn't mean that we don't also need to think about changing these institutions right that aren't necessarily that democratic or aren't necessarily that publicly accountable or aren't necessarily that collective participatory or whatever and i mean how do you think one engages in both of those critiques at the same time or is it you know a matter where well we have to prioritize getting capital out and then we can think about how we transform these institutions, perhaps using you know philanthropy in that middle position as a lever to do that. Well, for one thing, my my cute little elision uh-huh. of that problem is to say, <laughs> to be sure, you know, state based institutions aren't all they're cracked up sure. to be, right? Like, and then kind of move on to right. the meat of what I'm able uh-huh. to argue. So I can't say that I've done a great job of making two arguments at once. Um, but it's really hard to do. It's right? hard to do. Uh, the I think what I want is, um, I, ultimately, I want um, I want philanthropy to really occupy its own space. Mm-hmm. I want philanthropy to. I, I don't necessarily want to uh, co-op philanthropy as the um, as the water carrier for either the market or the state. Right. I want philanthropy to be, you know, cleared. I, I want all of this adulterating vocabulary to be cleared out so that philanthropy in my mind can be a space really in my, in my ideal world. Um, I would want a strong enough state providing for the basic needs of its mm-hmm. citizens such that philanthropy could occupy a more, um, maybe materially marginal, but sentimentally significant space, okay. affectively significant sure. space. I feel strongly about things that don't really affect a large number of people. They affect the 100 people who come to my Shabbat services every month. Uh-huh. They affect the you know few thousand people who come to the cultural and intellectual retreat center that I attend mm-hmm. every summer. They might affect my hometown. They might affect my, my the school system that I grew up in right. and supporting that through you know a separate foundation mm-hmm. for supplemental activities. But they don't necessarily need to... In my, my philanthropy, I wouldn't want it to operate like taxes that I have some, that I have uh-huh. more oversight over. Right. right. So I, I, you know, at this point I'm, I'm actually not enough of a policy person uh-huh. to say, okay, here's, here are all the things here's, here's the state column. And then here's the philanthropy column. Okay. Um, but I, I think I see a, I, what I would ideally want is, um, enough responsibility placed 
into the hands of a responsible Sweden-like state okay. um, <laughs> to give philanthropy the space that it can that that it can occupy to serve as really the only alternative realm for dealing with capital in an affective way. Okay. And so I guess uh, it's a three-part question. Right. So the first part of the question is, what kind of conceptual shifts in the way we think about philanthropy or we think about the role of the market or we think about the state are, do you think are necessary to help or start to enable that kind of shift in practice or in policy, right? What ideologically or conceptually has to change? Is it just simply, uh, you know, we need a better critique of capitalism or more widespread or more, you know, publicly available critique of capitalism or neoliberalism or something like that? Or is there more to it than that? I think it starts with a close read of um, of how the discourse around philanthropy mm-hmm. has changed. And I think it takes some real excavation of the founding assumptions right. behind the terminology that's become so very popular. Yeah. Um, so the, the, the words that I tossed off um, earlier, this fetishization of what we call, and, and this is happening, I think, on a broader scale as people start to critique uh, things like the sharing economy and right. kind of what what that papers over in terms mm-hmm. of power dynamics and risk and right. labor. I mean, like even like Vox dot com last week had a piece making fun of like the disrupt yeah. word or idea. Right. So so I think applying that uh, that sort of gimlet eyed analysis, and I literally mean we should all be drinking gimlets <laughs> while doing it. Um, <laughs> if, it, if it wasn't 10 or 11 in the morning right now, Amy and I would be drinking Gimlet's. Uh, believe that. So, uh, we sh- but we should be applying that same sort of um, rigorous analysis to uh, the to all of the kind of like feel good brainwashing mm-hmm. that's happening mm-hmm. in the philanthropic space that really attempts to make it not a space of. I'm here to sacrifice or to give back or any of those more sort of plain spoken um, sentimental terms, but I'm here to be somehow the um, the the innovative actor right. who like finds the solution or uh-huh. whose money finds a solution. That somehow there's a there's a need for. Um, there's a need for credit or achievement mm-hmm. could be a whole other article about millennials and sure. why they need their philanthropy to be that way. Um, but I think that's, I think it really starts with understanding the language that we use in uh-huh. that space. Yeah. So this may be the second and third parts of the question together to affect these kinds of shifts that you think are necessary so that philanthropy can occupy this different third space. Um, do you think that there are currents within activists or thinkers or philanthropists currently that are thinking about that and pushing in that direction? And then the final part of the question is, do you think that there are particularly good philanthropic models or organizations out there that are doing these kinds of things that because it's a smaller scale or because they're not engaged with these kinds of market dynamics that, um, you know, are dominant or hegemonic or whatever, aren't really, we don't really think about when we think about philanthropy currently. Um, I'm going to answer that second question first, sure. although it's a really sweet story and you might want to put it at the end of this. Okay. <laughs> so the, uh, I mean, if I, if I, if I went through my catalog of contacts, no question I could come up with. I mean, I'm going to actually say 
uh, the, the intellectual and cultural retreat center that I go to every summer that I'm going to on Sunday, the Chautauqua institution. Um, I went to their campaign launch back in April mm-hmm. and they pride themselves on being a space for in-person convening, um, every summer that you come to the grounds and you interact with your neighbors and there's something very sort of Aristotelian and okay. this like contained polis sure. of, of like persuasion and friendship huh. about it. Um, and the president was asked how they were going to incorporate technology because I distinctly remember some popped collar D bag asking <laughs> at this like ra- as this like young Chautauquans roundtable like why he why there couldn't be like video of all the lectures available online because like frankly he wanted to play golf and he wanted to see the lecture sure, of like course. of course wouldn't we all you know <laughs> um, and I remember the president of Chautauqua saying you know we don't. We don't want to just succumb to that type of pressure. We don't want to become something that's purely about like consumer convenience right. and, and instrumental in that way. We want people to be here in person and right. in this space. There's a lot of critiques you can make about the elitism of that, considering how expensive it is to go. We'll set that aside for now. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think of that as an example of people who are clearly like resisting and taking and really um, taking pride in their resistance sure. of this push towards. Um, instrumentality. Mm -hmm. But I want to actually tell a different story than that. When we think about alternatives to philanthropy, I think about the, this couple who I worked with when I ran a campaign at a synagogue Uh a year ago. Now this synagogue is like the, it's almost the perfect example because there really is no instrumental case that you can make for an enormous building that takes up huge amounts of resources that services like 1,200 families, uh-huh. right? And and it's religion, so there is very little in terms of concrete return. Mm-hmm. I mean, the whole point is spiritual <laughs> return, you know? Um, and I remember this couple, uh, Merle and Peter, who I adore, and the way that they talked about their philanthropy was the sense of this is our community. Mm-hmm. Like we have, we have a responsibility to support it. We have a responsibility to give back. Um, I remember having this conversation with the wife about the scope of gift that they were going to give and how meaningful the moment was when we found just the right recognition opportunity for an an unprecedented gift for them. And it's not that it's going to be like their name on a building or they're going to be these big shots. It's like a very sweet, subtle way of acknowledging that every year, you know, they make phone calls to their friends, they write their check faithfully, they show up at events, they're like engaged in the community and their financial support is part of a broader constellation of activity that like Mm -hmm. creates community. And so, no, they're not an institution, but they are, I think, an example of how you, how philanthropy is really about, I mean, these are business people. They're, they're successful, right? Right. They're very savvy, Uh um, but they don't, they don't take that with them into the gift conference. They, they, they sort of check that at the door um, and they check the ego gratification piece at the door because Mm -hmm. it really is about what does this institution need that I can help with um, as part as as part of a community, not not expecting anything in return, not mm-hmm. expecting to feel that I've solved something or I've accomplished, you know, like just 
what do I do to help? What do I do to be part of this collective effort? Mm-hmm. That was really meaningful to me. So that I hope that answers your second yeah, question. Yeah, it certainly does. Um, remind me of the first one. The first one is, I mean, and you know, you answered it as well, but even perhaps kind of maybe from a more you know activist or academic side, do you think that there's like an increasing or broader kind of set of forces that are coming together to try to engender these changes from that side as well, or those sides? There, There is a... Now probably a five or six year old uh, pamphlet called "The Revolution Will Not Be Funded." Uh-huh. Um, that I, I I wish I remember who came out with it, but again, it will be cited. Um, and in my research, I've found that there that like critiques are emerging and they are somewhat diffuse, um, but they're emerging all the time. Like I, because I'm like a walking Google alert for right. anything about <laughs> philanthropy uh-huh. or philanthropic capitalism or, you know, these, all the forces we're talking about. I see, um, a P I see an op-ed in some like Los Angeles weekly over here. Yeah. And I see a piece by Michael Edwards in the wall street journal over mm-hmm. here. And I see this like working paper from Virginia tech by these two professors. And I see, um, Kavita Ramdas, the founder of the Global Fund for Women, uh-huh. she's writing from Stanford with a critique of philanthropic capitalism. Um, there's, but there, but but because philanthropy, no one has sort of forcefully asserted that philanthropy belongs in any particular um, disciplinary right. home. It's hard to consolidate of those critiques. Um, and that's exactly Sounds what I'm like a dissertation. Yeah. Right. That's that would, thank you. That's precisely what I would attempt to do. Not again. I, I just want to be clear. Not that I believe in strict disciplinary boundaries, sure. um, but it does help to have some kind of convener or some kind of, um, hub for all of these critiques to reside and then to discipline, right. to, to disseminate from. Right. So, I mean, then, you know, this is the reason why we wanted to have you on the show, right? Is because you're kind of in a unique position to offer us these kinds of thoughts, right? As someone who is reporting and writing about it, as someone who is in grad school and thinking about them on that level, and also someone who's involved in some of these institutions. So, yes, the one thing we didn't mention in my introduction is that I am, I still work as a consultant in major gift mm-hmm. fundraising. So, I'm on the front lines of of how these mentalities are actually not just like, not just operating on intellectual level, but right. how they're affecting right. the way people treat nonprofit institutions. Um, and that comes after five years from the synagogue I mentioned, and then four years before that of, of running major gift based campaigns and contact with these mega donors. Yeah. So I think there we'll pivot to maybe a couple uh, more fun questions to end on. Great. So uh, first question. So I know that uh, you're studying for your comps exams. But that you also want to go to the beach a lot this summer. So if sure. you could take only one theorist to a desert island, and particularly like the affective experience of reading this theorist on on the beach, um, what theorist is best suited to read on the beach? If what? you can only read theorists at the beach. Isn't there a book like so-and-so on the beach? Like, isn't there some kind no of... Idea. Okay, whatever. Um, well... Full disclosure: When I was studying for comps, I read the entirety of *Genealogy of Morality* on the beach. Right. So, so, so Nietzsche is a good one, sure. right? Um, oh, it's Einstein. Einstein on the beach is this uh, okay. is this like radical dance work that was made. Uh, at Amazing. Yeah. Um, I don't know that it's like an enactment of reading Einstein at the beach per That's se. Okay. Uh, I, you know, 
I wish I wish I could be cool and say like, oh, I I just love um like name something like esoteric and hardcore. Like I really <laughs> want to bring Augustine to the beach because sure. he's just gonna keep me like straightened up and flying right, you know? Yeah. Um that would be kind of neat to say, but the truth is I'm gonna bring Foucault. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense to me. Um do you have a favorite theory or academia meme? You can include your own in there. I mean, I did create Beyond Seder, which is not theory or academic. Unless, right. I mean, Beyonce, of course, is a subject of much critical discourse. Uh, it is a mashup of the Passover story image. It told through images overlaid with Beyonce lyrics as captions. Uh, you can see it on beyondseder.tumblr.com <laughs> if you're so inclined. Um, uh, you know... Uh, you've, you've sent me the, the, the Bedou Beyonce mashup. Right. I believe there's also one. I, I, I distinctly remember a single ladies video gif involving the bobbleheads of like Zizek and Foucault Perfect. and Beyonce. So I'm just going to like leave it there. I right. feel like that's my life. Okay. Yeah. Um, so you get to pick one person, one critical theorist, let's say, to go time traveling with. Who do you pick and what time do you go to? Obviously, I pick Lucy Rigoret. Okay. Um, because, <laughs> because, like, favorite, like, person ever. Uh, and where do we go? Yeah. We go to the future. Okay. I don't know what that's about, Perfect. but that's totally where we go. All right. Final question. Um, would you rather go on an interminal date with Aristotle or have to take a cross-country road trip with Rousseau. So the problem with Aristotle, like I'm, I'm inclined, obviously this is why it's set up this way. I'm, I'm obviously inclined towards Aristotle, except for the part where he really just thinks I belong in the kitchen. Yep. Right. So that's a problem. Um, the question though is, would Rousseau let you drive? Probably not. I don't, but I don't want to drive. That's a good point. I like, I don't, you know, like Rousseau has, listen, if Rousseau is so into fucking perfectibility and everything, <laughs> he can figure out the directions and the optimal route and like where we're going to stop for gas. Sure. And, you know, he, like he can do all the logistics and I'll just stare out the window. So obviously it's the road trip with Rousseau. All right. Amy Schiller, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for doing this, John, and being Rachel by extension. All right. And uh, your website? For people can visit, we'll put it in the show notes. Thank Bye. you. It's Amy Best Schiller, all one word, A-M-Y-B-E-S-S-S-C-H-I-L-L-E-R.com. Right. And you're on Twitter at, at Justice Schill, mm -hmm. correct? Well, so in college... Uh, I was able to get the email handle as chill at brandeis.edu. <laughs> and now I have this weirdo Gmail address, abshill at, at, at gmail.com. And it's just not the same. But I've always loved as chill. So I'm just as chill. All right. Thank you, Amy. Thank you. segment my tumblr friend from canada <laughs> with special guest emily crandall i love that name luckily the first question we have for reals comes from an anonymous person on my tumblr <laughs> i got this, asked this question anonymously 
if you get an article accepted with major revisions, how significant should your revisions be? Do you need to restructure the whole paper? Do journals accept papers that need significant revisions if they find the analysis overall compelling or interesting? What's what separate a paper that is rejected from one that needs significant revisions? Thoughts, people? Well, I have some experience working as an editorial assistant at a journal that okay. will remain nameless. As it should. Um, in my experience, it a hundred percent depends upon how many people are well versed in this topic and whether you have a wide selection of reviewers or a very narrow section okay. selection of reviewers because unfortunately um some academics are not great at review the reviewing sure. process and you could get a revise and resubmit with two paragraphs of feedback or you could get a revise and resubmit with a detailed um you know track changes throughout the entire manuscript. Uh, so I think it also depends on whether or not the editorial staff of the journal is really involved in the uh, that process or whether it they're just sort of like a board that meets once every few months and yeah. sort, of, sort of signs off on the uh, last line stuff. But I would say you have a really a better sense of, um, although I don't know how ethical it is to sort of like guess at who your reviewers might be ahead of time. But if you're writing on something, I think where you know that you have a really wide range of people who are well-versed in that and who would probably be, um, you know, available to comment or something like that, then you're probably going to get, um, I would say better feedback than if you're writing on something that only two people in the world know how to, (laughs) uh, critique yeah. especially they'll probably be really busy if they're the only two people who can review your essay i don't uh, know does that jive with what you guys know about the <laughs> review process i mean i've only so, had one experience so much of yeah. it really depends on the reviews themselves right. right i mean you know so in my article that got published recently contemporary political theory i mean i will say that like the journal did a really nice job of picking reviewers and I got some really good reviews. I mean, you can get, you know, a review that's constructive and gives you good criticism and actually gives you um, places to go with your work. And that can be really helpful. Then you kind of have a clear idea of what exactly needs to be done to make this article um, publishable. Sometimes when I'm dealing right now with the revise and resubmit where I got one review that was like totally harsh and completely unhelpful. So I really have no idea what to do about that. And so a lot of it's going to depend on that in particular. So it's kind of hard to make general advice, I think. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think the availability of reviewers also (laughs) affects like the likelihood that you'll get really useful feedback. If there are fewer reviewers available, your feedback's probably not going to be as great. Right. It's just like... And it's statistically you can't ever assume i don't think that like even if you have the perfect review and respond to everyone's comments that's not like an automatic guarantee that it's eventually going to be accepted i think that's true one upside though is that like if you take the review seriously and like you especially if you're like oh these reviews make this paper a better paper even if it doesn't get accepted eventually right then it's in much better shape to be submitted to another journal hopefully Yeah. yeah that's true um yeah, it's a tough. I question. mean, the other the other thing is, hmm, where was I gonna go? Wait, can I say one more thing? Yeah. Real quick? So when you did your revise and resubmit, yeah. how much time went between when you first submitted and when you resubmitted? Um, 
gosh, that's a good question. Just like a few months or something? Um, it was pretty quick. Like yeah. I said, the journal was actually really good about doing that. Um, but I, I think that from the time I got the revise and resubmit back to the time I resubmitted was maybe like two months. And I think they said that I had to like have it in within three mm-hmm. or something like that. I mean, so like I, I ended up having to kind of shift the overall frame of the argument that I made in the piece, but in a way that actually made it better. So that it wasn't just, I was having a bigger conversation and you know, linking up to like broader critical discussion of neoliberalism and that kind of stuff. Right. Um, so it was really helpful. So I had to like do some restructuring. I had to like go do a bunch of more reading um, and all that ultimately made it a better paper. Yeah. But it's also a lot of work. So another element of the process that may determine whether the R&R actually gets uh, transformed into sure. something published is whether they have um, the same reviewers review your resubmission yeah, or totally. whether they have to get new ones. And you don't know that And in you advance. have no way of knowing that. So that's kind of unfortunate. Like, you know, you could get really good feedback from somebody that gave really detailed and constructive and useful um, advice for how to redo your article and then they may be busy and somebody else may read it and then mm-hmm. they may not they may not like it it's just it totally depends on the review process which is unfortunate there's no <laughs> no formula no i mean the review process can be really terrible it can be for sure and from what i'm seeing in my facebook feeds from a number of my professor friends mm-hmm. that just tends to be the rules that you're going to have in submitting journal articles always a pretty decent reviewer with great and wonderful feedback and one really harsh mean reviewer that has nothing really constructive to offer right um and it's you know just making sure that you don't lose sight of your voice in your own work and maintaining that Mm -hmm. integrity um and not sacrificing it you know for some said sake which is a hard Um, balance to strike it is very and uh and also Having, you know, sometimes it's, you know, I had the fortunate luck for a short essay I submitted was uh, reviewed by the very person whose work I was citing most regularly within it. Um, which and, technically you shouldn't know. Which I should know, but later found out. Okay. Um, because this person ended up being on, as I looked on the editorials, obviously editorial staff for the journal. And, um, and I was like, oh my God, oh my God. Of course, being a big fan of this person in general. Um, and, but lots of really great feedback, lots of different ways of thinking about the, the topic itself and reformulating it and actually, um, walking away with a new way of thinking about what I wanted to do with my dissertation. So yeah, it could, it can work on multiple levels. I think, yeah. I know that the ultimate point is you want to see it in the manuscript. You want to see it published. Um, but also thinking about it in the longer term that you can get it published elsewhere and, learn many other things from the process. Right. I mean, ideally, even if you don't have the best or most helpful or most constructive reviews, there are things in there to make the manuscript better. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. And in some ways, one of the tasks of doing a revision is to extract whatever you can from the reviews. I mean, if the review is constructive, right, then listen to that review and follow what they're doing while maintaining your own voice, while following, you know, the requirements of the journal, et cetera, et cetera. But in the less constructive reviews, you know, I guess part of the task is to extract what you can from it. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Um, There's a really good post uh, on Laura Schoberg's blog um, we'll link to about doing a revise and resubmit that I think is really helpful and really good advice. Awesome. Any other thoughts? No. 
I think no. you've covered All it. All right. Yeah. Let's go to the next question. The next question's for me. From B. Yep. It's yeah. not anonymous at all. Life advice. Life advice. Um, so how would I phrase this in a succinct way? So you go out on a... <laughs> Latour. You, yeah. Latour. <laughs> Latour. Done. Uh, so you go out on a first date. Okay. You really hit it off. Amazing, in fact. You would describe the date as amazing and probably one of the best dates you've been on. This is succinct. For a long time. Okay. Okay. I'm... I like to qualify stories. Um, and the other person thinks so as well. Right? How do you know this? Uh, because this text person evidence. has not only texted about it, but was talking about it all through the date. And okay. then, you know, kissing during the date obviously sure. indicates Ooh, kissing. Um, chemistry. Uh, second yeah. date happens. Okay. Except the second date ends up being kind of awkward in a way, a little distant, strange, uh, almost unsaid elephant in the room. Don't know really why it's the case. Um, and you know, you leave kind of feeling strange and why was that the, you know, why did that just happen? Um, my question would be, do you want to, if you still are interested in pursuing this, would you want to text the person be like, uh, address hey, the awkwardness. you know, it was kind of awkward the last time or is that, is that pushing it too much or just pretend mm. like it didn't happen? I have some – I have – here's what I think. I think that there are the two most likely scenarios are, one, that because the first date was so good, there was so much pressure to have a really good second date to live up to the expectations and optimism or hope or whatever of the first date, that that is one of the – or the primary source of the awkwardness. Okay. If that's the case, then I actually think that texting to be like, hey, that was kind of awkward is a, maybe a really good idea. Mm-hmm. We're such millennials. Yeah. <laughs> Seriously. Just text. Let's go I with this texting. process. Yeah. We just need to process. Process and text. And then, yeah. <laughs> I think you should actually Facebook message. Oh, Another <laughs> possibility just is Kids don't use that, Facebook anymore. Do I know. That's know that? what I heard. Yeah. I, makes me what? feel old. Kiss? What? Kids. Oh, oh kids. They use Instagram now. Oh. And like some and app Snapchat. called Yo. Let's and just Snapchat. Yo. Let's just not. Yeah, Yo, it's great. You just like press someone's name and it sends them a message that just says yo that's all you can do yep and someone like actually it. made five hundred thousand dollars <laughs> off of that app oh capitalism <laughs> off of a yo app back to anyway anyway question. second scenario the second scenario is like it's just not meant to be mm-hmm. but if that's the scenario i would also suggest texting because then you'll be able to find yeah. out Based on when the response of this other person to the text, you'll be able to get a better sense of what the awkwardness was there for. So my thought is, yes, you text about the awkwardness. Okay. Text about the awkwardness. Right. Yeah, but don't make like a huge deal out of it. Yeah. Not like feelings dumpy text, okay. but like a cash. Like, hey, it was kind of awkward, you know, last time just checking in. Well, I'll, but also like emphasize that you had a lot of fun or you think they're hot or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. Hey, you're totally hot, but it was really awkward sure. the last time. I think What's that's... up with the awkwardness? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> or like, you know, the first day was a lot of fun, whatever. Okay. John, did you just say totes cash? I wish. I don't think I did. <laughs> I wish I did. Totes cash. Because that was amazing. B, your response needs to be totes cash. Yeah. <laughs> totes cash. I, I that's what your Best advice be. ever. You need to be totes cash. You need to be totes cash. That's a probes. Totes a probes. <laughs> Um, Emily, you need to give some advice to B too. I mean, I'm really into texting. Other, so. other, other than find this person on Yo. Yeah, yo. exactly. You should just Yo them. Yeah. <laughs> yo. 
with a then a text saying "Weeku" with no L. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's and like an too, emoji. That's I think too that's too cash. Too cash. <laughs> that's too cash. <laughs> that's post cash. <laughs> not um, not neo cash. Um, I would just say, don't be too like overbearing concern right. don't be like i'm so worried about you you were super weird what's wrong oh yeah 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 right because i think i think the key well that's is not my that, style anyway yeah i which i totally yeah, makes yeah sense you to have me. no caring instincts <laughs> 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 oh because my I god beverly <laughs> why <laughs> why did you say it i did think you just called me beverly on the always already i podcast? did <laughs> oh, the no. goal is presuming that regardless of the scenario the pressure is probably one of the reasons for the awkwardness so the texting should take should relieve pressure okay that'd be my thought but or i you think could, the texting's the way or you could just it, suggest a third hangout yeah. and then say but maybe minus the awkwardness of last yeah, time yeah totally <laughs> that's actually, that's actually brilliant that's brilliant yeah and like then that gives you and especially if like it's on the table that even in like a cash distancing <laughs> way like without the awkwardness you can acknowledge the other person that you understand that it was awkward yeah and then the third date is like well now we can kind of figure out what's actually yeah. happening like what so i think that's that's great advice that was really you could advice. combine the two advice but i'd go with emily's more yeah i mean i think they're just like offshoots of the same <laughs> advice go for a third date yours, without yours the was like general and mine was a little bit strategic yeah. you know like Be, go constantly I agree. become okay I'm going to do Always it. already. Always Coach already. Cash. Always already. Cash, constantly becoming. Always already on a third date. Always already. All right. Thank you, listeners, for joining us. Thank you. Come back next week for B-sides of more of LaClau. And then the week after that, we're talking about uh, Saba Mahmoud's Politics of Piety with another special guest. Ooh. Thank you especially to Emily for joining us. Thanks, thank Emily you. slash Beverly. Thank you, John. And thank you, B. And thank you, listeners. Listeners. <laughs> Bye. 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 Always Ready Podcast is created by B. Altman, Rachel Brown, and John McMahon. Find us online, alwaysalreadypodcast.wordpress.com. Email us, advice, questions, feedback, text you'd like us to discuss at alwaysalreadypodcast.gmail.com. Like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on iTunes, or some other RSS feeder of your choosing. Thanks to our very own B. Altman for music in today's episode, covering Landslide by Fleetwood Mac and Over the Hills and Far Away by Led Zeppelin. Stay tuned for more talk about LaClau in next week's B-Sides in Episode 5 about Salah Mahmoud's The Politics of Piety. Why do I feel like this was a sweaty balls moment on <laughs> Saturday Night Live? <laughs>